The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Gary Nicholson is a two-time Grammy-winning producer and member of the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. He has had more than 500 recordings of his songs released. His songs span multiple genres, including country, rock, blues, folk, bluegrass, and pop. After growing up near Dallas and playing in seedy bars in Fort Worth, Texas, he went off to North Texas State University to play guitar and music. And after an evening partying with the legendary Graham Parsons of the Flying Burrito Brothers, he was lured to Los Angeles by Graham. There he met up with his college buddies, Don Henley and Jim Ed Norman. This was the early 1970s heyday of the Laurel Canyon Hollywood singer-songwriter boom and the guitar-playing and songwriting bug bit Gary. His songs have been recorded by an insanely long list of artists, which includes Garth Brooks, B.B. King, John Prine, Ringo Starr, Waylon Jennings, Emmylou Harris, Vince Gill, Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac, Willie Nelson, George Strait, Kenny Chesney, Robert Plant, Reba McIntyre, and the list goes on and on. His 50-year friendship and collaboration with Delbert McClinton produced over 50 recorded songs and several award-winning records. An amazingly kind and humble man who is overflowing with talent. You may not know Gary Nicholson, but you have heard his songs and you need to get to know him. And we're going to do that on this episode of Backstory Song. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and I have the true pleasure to have with us today a member of the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame, Gary Nicholson. Welcome, Gary. Hi. You are a two-time Grammy-winning producer and singer-songwriter, performer with a long career, um, an amazing roster. Yeah, I, I was stunned. There are um, over 1,000 songs registered in the ASCAP directory for at least one of your spellings of your names that I found. And I believe there's over 600 recorded songs that you have written out there for people to listen to? It's um, a number that changes. It's hard to keep count of what's going on, but somewhere in some biography and an interview, I was informed that, that I'd had um, 
over 600 recordings of my songs. So, wow. I'll go with it, whatever, whoever's counting. So, Gary, you grew up in Garland, Texas, played in a bunch of bands there the Valiants, the Catalinas, the Untouchables. I read that you actually were underage when you and your bandmates were playing and told your parents you were playing in a bowling alley, but it turned out to actually be a strip club at one point? Well, no, that was actually uh, summer of 1966. Um, I was playing at the Cellar in Fort Worth, which was not a strip club. It was just the wildest place you could ever imagine. But what we, the bowling alley thing came in, it's funny how stories get morphed into other things. What we would do is our uh, rhythm guitar player, uh, his parents were kind of older when they had him, but he, we could fool him pretty easy. And we told his parents that, that he was working at the all night bowling alley. And then we would disconnect the speedometer from his parents Ford Galaxy and drive from Dallas to Fort Worth and play the cellar gig, which our first set would be at eight o'clock. And then our last set would be from four until five in the morning where we rotated with two other bands. So you play an hour, then you're off for two hours, play an hour and off two hours. And so, and then we drive home or back to the bowling alley and we'd get everybody get get their other cars, and I would go to my summer school class, which started at 7.30 to 12.30. That's been exhausted. And uh, and then after that, I had a job delivering prescriptions from 1 till 6, and then I was back to meet the guys. So I, I don't know how I survived that summer, but... So it was just a rough bar. It wasn't... Yeah, it, it's, it's, the, it's the roughest gig I ever played in my life, and it's the first gig I ever played in my life. That was a steady, you know, five nights a week kind of a thing. So this place was, it's all painted black and had Dayglow writing on the walls that says, live is evil spelled backwards. Motel is let them spelled backwards. Behind the drum riser on the stage, there's a big painting of, you know, shooting the finger. The waitresses all wore only panties and bra, and they had a, a table in the, with a bunch of pills around it right in front of the of the bandstand where a girl would do a little striptease thing, and the last thing that would happen would was all the, the lights would go off and a, a bouncer would shine a flashlight on our tits long enough that all the guys could actually see some real breasts before she ran off the platform she was dancing on it and then there was a like a catwalk directly in front of the band where all the girls in panties and bra would dance in front of the guys in the band and when you're singing into an electro voice 664 and there's a, a girl who's punching on the microphone from the catwalk it's uh anyway it's pretty rank the article said that they shut down the live music because the girls wanted to just deal with the jukebox. <laughs> you got fired for a jukebox. There was a time when we had a gig for a weekend. We were hired to play for a month, but after the first weekend, we found out that the strippers would rather strip to the jukebox than our band, so we got fired. So when did you start writing songs, and why did you start writing songs? 
I really got to the songwriting part late. I was in one of the first years of college at North Texas State. This is 68, 69 or so. I started writing a few songs, and then my band, which was really into, um, by the time 1970 came around, I had a kind of a country rock band before you even called it country rock. We just, we had this amazing steel guitar player in our band, Larry White. And I was really into um, uh, Buffalo Springfield and Poco and this kind of country rock um, thing. And then the band's Big Pink came out and then Brown album. And so we were off into that kind of thing when the Burritos record came out. And Graham Parsons Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah, we, we really we really took to that and learned three or four songs off that first Burrito Brothers record. And then eventually that's how we wound up leaving Dallas and going to Los Angeles. We met the Graham Parsons came over to our little crash pad that we practiced at after the Burritos played at the uh, State Fair band show. And our steel player had shown Sneaky Pete through the through the MSA Steel Guitar Factory, that's how we met those guys, and they invited us to their gig. And then Graham came over and hung out with us all all night long until the sun came up, and he encouraged us to come to Los Angeles because Larry was such an incredible steel steel player. He was really impressed with Larry. I was not much of a country guitar player, and those I was just a a kid that fell in love with Freddie King and BB King, and that's kind of all I played was blues in those days i didn't have a fender guitar i had a 335 but larry was a really schooled country musician he taught me a lot and i you know and anyway that's how we got to california so you go to california and graham parsons tees you up for an open mic talent what really happened is uh, we talked to to graham from i guess bakersfield or so as we were getting there and he said well meet me at the palomino so we we got to the palomino it was talent night and graham informed us it was talent night and that we, we were going to be on the talent show and we said well no man we're we play gigs you know we're a band i mean we're you know we're not amateurs you know he said no just do it you know so uh, we got in the talent show and we won the talent show and we met all these amazing people that not, um, James Burton was there and, and Red Rhodes, a really great steel player, fell in love with Larry, our steel player. And so we wound up sleeping on his kids' bunk beds for a couple of weeks. Wow. Um, and uh, James is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, James is a wonderful friend. I, I've I've gotten to, to know him through the years, and I, I he, he invited me to come and be a part of his guitar festival in Shreveport. So you guys form a band called Uncle Jim's Music. Yeah, originally we were, the steel player and the drummer of our band went back to Texas and uh, the bass player and I stayed and we met a a banjo player, a young guy that was just really talented banjo player and high singer. And we formed a little bluegrass trio called the White Horse Brothers. The unique thing about us is we played original, all these original songs that I'd written, and we sang three-part harmony. It was the novelty of a bluegrass band that played original songs 
got us gigs opening for Dillard and the Expedition and and the Dillards and various, you know, we could play some of the bluegrass festivals. We weren't the hottest bluegrass players. I was just faking my way through being a flat picker, but we did have original songs and that's what gave us a chance. And then so that evolved into Uncle Jim's music and we we made a couple records for MC, uh, an MCA division that was called Cap Records. Uh, we made a couple records and nothing happened. And band broke up and I uh, moved back to Texas. But Now, legend also has it that you went to college with Delbert McClinton and Don Henley at North Texas. So the real story on that is, uh, no, Delbert didn't go to college. Delbert was playing gigs while I was in college. Yeah. But Henley was... Um, he lived in the same apartment complex as the guy that that was now roommates with the guy that was the rhythm guitar player in my frat band. That this was Jim Ed Norman, and so Henley would always come around, and you know we hung out a little bit in North Texas, and then you know because of the Graham thing, I, I moved to California, and about a month later or so, Jim Ed played in Henley's band, which was called Felicity. And then they changed the name of the band to Shiloh, and Kenny Rogers' wife became their manager, and uh, Kenny was instrumental in getting them signed to a little record label called Amos Records. And the office for Amos Records is right down the street in Hollywood from where I lived above the Golden West recording studio in, there in Hollywood at Selma and Coanga. And so... A bunch of Texas boys wandering around, around Hollywood, you know, wondering what a transvestite was and stuff. <laughs> Did you find it there? We we finally figured out why there was lipstick and knee pads. You know, it, it was rough. Henley's band was uh, Don was the only drummer that I knew when our drummer went back to Texas. So he he played on the demos that that we got our record deal with. And then he played our showcase at the Troubadour when we, uh, when we played for the record company. Now, were you part of Linda Ronstadt's backing band with him? No, I never played in Linda's band, but Linda's producer, John Boylan produced our first record. And I saw Linda and that their whole band every day because we rehearsed at the same rehearsal place. It's funny, I just got off the phone talking with Jeff Hanna, who's from the Dirt Band, and and I met him during that same period of time, and we were talking about the places we lived in um, in the early 70s around Hollywood. It was really Don and Glenn, and then they found Randy Meisner, and they they had the trio, and then they were looking for a guitar player, and I would send people over to audition. To you know, They finally landed with Bernie Ledden, but at this time, we... My band's first record was out, and we were working on our second record, and and Don and Glenn were putting together the, the Eagles at this same funky little rehearsal hall there on Lancashire. So, yeah, it was interesting looking back, seeing that all go down. Interesting part of history. Mm-hmm. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. They've been fighting now for weeks So finally just to keep the peace They decided not to speak Now she won't say a word to him And he treats her the same Last night we all went dancing And they played this crazy game They said They chose the ones that fit their thoughts And argued all night long She played Release Me And he played Stand By Your Man She played Don't Be Angry And he played Out of Hand So you get your first breakthrough song, and Backstory Song is about the songs, when Jim Ed Norman goes back to Nashville and records with Mickey Gilly Jukebox Argument, and that gets into the John Travolta-starring movie, The Urban Cowboy. Right. Yeah, this was uh, 1980. I had been playing this huge dance hall Honky Tonk Place in uh, in Dallas from played the same place for a couple of years and all those song titles kept running around in my head and I just as a novelty out of boredom I wrote this song Jukebox Argument which is about two people who are arguing and they no longer speak to each other but they argue by playing songs back and forth on the jukebox she plays Release Me and he plays Stand By Your Man and she plays Don't Be Angry, and he plays Out of Hand. And she plays Good-Hearted Woman and When Will I Be Loved. And he plays He'll Have to Go in the Window Up Above. And she plays Jealous Heart and Suspicious Mind, and he plays Cheating Heart and Lion Eyes. And she plays I'll Get Over You, and he plays Born to Lose. So anyway, you get, you get what goes on. 
that was my foot in the door to come to Nashville. And, and I had two sons at the time. I eventually had four sons that uh, we moved our young family to Nashville in 1980. And I wrote for Jim Ed's company for three years and then went to Tree Publishing. I was a staff writer there for 15 years. Legendary publishing house with amazing roster of writers, some of whom have been on the show with us. What other tree people have done your show? Bobby Braddock. Oh, great. Well, he's the greatest hero of all time. In some respects, yeah. He's the guy, the most renowned tree songwriter, I guess, he and Curly Putman. And, of course, they did have Roger Miller and, uh, you know, um, Red Lane and uh, Willie Nelson in the early days and all that. Yeah, no, I read Bobby's uh, autobiography and it sounded like an amazingly creative environment to be in. Yeah, it was fantastic. I, I got there in 83, so, but, you know, there were still, you know, you'd have Harlan Howard listening to your song at the end of the weeks, hanging out, and, you know, just uh, Hank Cochran would come around occasionally with Jeannie Seeley. Braddock was always around, and Curly Putman, and... Uh, Kevin Welch and Jamie O'Hara and I were kind of a a running bunch in those days. Anyway, it was a, it was a wonderful time to be there, and uh, and Tree was a really strong publisher. Every every artist came there looking for songs, so you uh, you had a chance. You know, if you had a really good song, you had a really good chance of getting it cut. Sometimes you feel lost and far from home Then with just one kiss You're a king on a throne It can make you soar like an eagle Or it can make you feel meek as a dove Some fools don't know what they've got till it's gone The very one you think will never hurt you Always seems to be the one that does But oh, that's the thing about love So there you had your first number one hit song, That's the Thing About Love, in 1984. But let's talk about That's the Thing About Love. That's a co-write with Richard Lee, who wrote Don't It Make Your Brown Eyes Blue. Um, Richard's just a really great songwriter, and we hit it off and started writing a lot together. And um, my first B.B. King cut was a co-write with Richard as well. But at the time that that was um, a hit, I just met Garth Fundus, and he produced the record, and uh, he had me come over and hear it at the studio. It's the first time Don Williams had ever had a saxophone on his record. And the saxophone was played by 
Jim Horn, who I'd met when I was doing my records in in Hollywood. He was working on a Beach Boys record at the same time that we were recording in the other room. And so it was thrilled to have that and to see that thing climb the charts all the way. And it was the song that got me out of the worst rent house in Nashville and allowed me to be able to buy my first house. So you've written a lot, a lot of love songs that have been recorded. And this is obviously one of them. That's the thing about love by Don Williams. Tell me, like, it's not the easiest thing to write a love song, but it comes so naturally for you. And you come at the topic from so many different angles. Like, how do you keep writing love songs? And where does the inspiration for it come? And where did this inspiration come from on That's the Thing About Love? Well, it was an idea for a song. It sounded like a song title. You know, it's not like it was from direct personal experience or anything. It just, you know, it's just the nature of it can be everything and it can disappear as quickly as it came and that kind of commentary on love. But to the question of, um, yeah, I've got so many songs with love in the title. It's, you know, I guess I'd like to think that, you know, I have been, with the same woman since, you know, we met when when we were 18 at North Texas State, and we've been married for 47, going on 48 years. So, um, All right, I got to ask you, what is the secret for our listeners to making a, a love last that long? Oh, uh, probably um, karmic luck. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no explaining it's the past life connection that we've been there, done that before, and we're very comfortable with each other. And uh, it's really that she's one of the most remarkable people I've ever encountered anywhere. Barbara is it? Barbara, yeah, she's she's amazing. She has a nonprofit parenting organization called Attachment Parenting International, and it's uh, you know there's chapters of it all over. The world, actually, we, we've been going to Athens, Greece, for the last three years uh, for her to do teacher training there, and then she's also done that in South America. But they're they're changing the name of the organization to Nurture, and that's what it'll be known as in the future. But but aside from that, she's a wonderful mother, and and she's my best friend, and so I'm I'm a really lucky guy. So wow, sounds like it. So did she? in particular, inspire any of your love songs? Well, really, she, all of them, the positive ones. And then, you know, the thing is, I mean, I would write breaking up songs or losing love songs. M- my parents divorced when I was 12 years old. So I, I saw that that side of it as well. And, uh, you know, it's the nature of country music. You're writing love songs, you know. Of course, you know, you know that changes. I mean, it's been beer songs here for the last 20 years, I guess. But. Right. Did you and Richard Lee sit down and say, let's write a love song today? No, I think we started playing some changes that we we liked and then just kind of the whimsical nature of, whoa, that's the thing about love. is like you're, you can't do anything about it. It's just you get what you get. I really like this line. Well, next time you come in a natural flow, deep in the feelings with your heart all aglow, like the first time I heard that, I was like, 
What's a natural flow? But that sounds cool. Yeah, you know, um, I actually came up with those lines because Richard would remind me later that those were lines that I I came up with. But I think he's the one that said something about your heart all aglow because I think I thought, well, that's weird or something, you know. But anyway, it, it worked, and it's a real special song for me you know it's like uh and it was particularly great for me because i was playing with bobby bear at the time and we were playing in new york city at lone star cafe and uh i was on the bus and and bobby came on the bus and he had a usa today paper and in the little corner of the usa today it had a picture of don williams and said that's the thing about love was number one and and bear said we get back to Nashville, you got to help me find a guitar player because you need to stay in town and and write songs all the time while you got some momentum. And Oh, that was nice of him to yeah, understand. So, I mean, we, we got back, and I, I've got Mark, uh, Max D. Barnes' son, Max T. Barnes. Uh, in an hour's time, I could show him everything about Bears gig. You know, if you had the Detroit City lick down here, pretty much got the gig figured out. <laughs> but I love Bear, and he was very generous to do that. The Detroit City Lick, that's the... Uh... Yeah, you know how that goes. You know. The Mitch Ryder Lick? No, no, no. Uh, last night I went to sleep in Detroit City. I got it, got it, got it. I just... And I dreamed about those cotton fields back home, you know. If you had that, you could do most of Bobby's uh, well, repertoire. I, you know, I love Bobby Taylor. I was a fan of his from way back. And around that time, Rodney Crowell had produced a record on it. And, and I'd been playing with Guy Clark. That was my first gig. Was uh, I played with Guy for about three years when I first got to Nashville. And then I started doing this gig with Bear right after I'd played with Billy Joe Shaver for about six or eight months or so. So this song goes to number one. Do you have a number one party? Yeah, yeah. That was uh, We had a number one party uh, at Tree, and then uh, the president of Tree, the, the lady that ran it, Donna Hilly, and then the, uh, the other publisher, which was at that time it was Jimmy Gilmer that was uh, running Richard Lee's publishing company, CBS Songs. They took us out for a really great dinner, and you know, we had some celebrations around it. It was, it was fun. She was standing at the front door when I got home last night. A good book in her left hand and a rolling pin in her right. She said, may you come home.
can't see She said you ain't going nowhere, boy Till you spend a little time with me Then the boys called from the honky-tonk Said there's a party going on down here Well, she might have took my car key But she forgot about my Yeah, another chart-topping song that was more of a breakup song with Vince Gill. Vince and I met because um, I was playing with Guy Clark, and we we did a Rodney Crowell produced a Guy Clark record, and Vince and I played the guitars on it. And uh, I was, you know, as anyone would be amazed at Vince's ability, and we became friends from that, and then... He got signed to a new record deal. He'd been at RCA and hadn't had much success. And he got signed by Tony Brown to MCA. And he came over to write a song. And at the time, I had this kind of center block buildings in the back of my house that was called the Chicken Shack. And we, we had some, you know, we'd made a little studio, a little writing studio in, in the garage back there. And Vince came over. And uh, I had already written a song called one more last chance, but it was like a six eight ballad, kind of a give me one more last chance to prove that I love you. That kind of a R and B six eight ish ballad thing, and because I was I was writing a bunch of songs for T Graham Brown's records at the time, and uh, anyway, Vince came over and we started playing this up tempo groove, you know, that's kind of like a hyped up, lay down Sally feel. And, and I just started hollering out the one more last chance thing. And then uh, Vince had been reading Tammy Wynette's biography where she described how George Jones um, trying to get George to quit drinking. So she hit all the keys of the cars and then he got the ride in a lot more and went to the honky tonk. You know, that's a famous story, right? He took the keys of the cars, but he still drove the John Deere to the yeah, bar. Yeah, so that's how that's how our second verse came about because of that George Jones story. And then he got George to ride a green tractor in the in the video at the end of it. Yeah, that's a that's a funny video. They were filming, and Vince fell out of a golf cart that was going pretty fast. Yeah, they caught that and put that in the video. <laughs> I thought that was acting. That was an accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. That was a. A thrill because we were nominated for the song of the year. I think we were up against Chattahoochee, and they won. But it was it was a, a big deal. It was a great little way to have a number one record. And Vince still plays it. And then there's there's a video of him playing it at Clapton's Guitar Festival with all these badasses playing solos. And you know, it's it's one of those songs that's fun to play. So you co-wrote that with Vince, and he's obviously an extremely talented guitar player, and so are you. How did you like come up with the guitar licks? Like, who's doing what there in the song? Oh, it's it's all Vince. I mean, it's uh, I mean, we wrote the song and made a little work tape in my studio in the Chicken Shack, and then uh, he just went and cut it with Tony and all those great players and you know I'm not, I'm not playing on the record or anything and it's it's just it's all Vince you know, doing his Vince thing coming straight out 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 of James Burton and Albert Lee you know that's where that particular aspect of Vince's playing comes from 
but Vince plays all kinds of, he's an incredible bluegrass player and jazz player and everything else. But yeah, I didn't have anything to do with making that record. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Another chart-topping hit called She Couldn't Change Me by Montgomery Gentry. So tell me about this song. Where did it come from? That's written with Chris Knight. I, I was a fan of Chris Knight's the first time I heard his his songs, and eventually we got together and started writing, and we, we wrote a lot of songs together, and I wound up producing a record on Chris. It's called Enough Rope. Anyway, he's Chris is just one of my favorite co-writers I, I love what he does and the, that song originated with the line that he had that said i sometimes i think what turned her on was my old broke down boots she wanted her real cowboy you know it was a phase she was going yeah, through phase she was going through yeah we had that song and uh i just made a little work tape with a a drum loop and uh, and chris sang it and it was around and we figured it'd be something that he put on one of his records eventually or something. And my son took it to um, whoever the A&R guy was at the label that Montgomery Gentry was at the time. And, and he liked it and miraculously uh, they cut it and um, it got to be a hit record. They made a real cute little video for it and stuff. It's kind of a story of a woman who gets enamored of the West Coast and, you know, changes everything to become like this, I think of a Los Angeles person, like, you know, <laughs> realizes that's not real and comes back. Yeah. 
you knew what LA was like, right? Chris had the same thing, other or did he just have the stereotype of what it was like in his head? Well, probably, you know. I mean, you know, we're just inventing a story about what what would happen to uh, a girl that fell in love with a guy because he was a funky country dude, and and that's what she first liked about him. But then, you know, she puts her white wine in her refrigerator and throws out his moonshine and paints the bedroom blue and. Anyway, she takes off and comes back, and it's our little story we invented. Is there something about a blue bedroom? Well, I think it maybe it's, you know, hoping for having children or whatever, you know. Yeah, Pink Chablis replacing homebrew was tragic, you know, so. That would get you kicked out of the cellar in Earth, wouldn't it? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Chris Knight, I love Chris Knight. I hadn't talked to him in a while. Tell me about, you said he's one of your favorite co-writes. You've done so many co-writes with so many people as well as producing so many artists and you're such a great collaborator. Tell me what makes a great co-write and why was Chris such a great co-write? Well, I think with Chris, he's a natural and he's a John Prine lover, you know. And at the time that we started writing, I'd written half of a record with with John, his Lost Dogs and Mixed Blessings record, and I was a big fan of John's. And and Chris had this real simplicity about him and a real intentional... That's a great thing about collaborating with people who have a real strong musical persona. It's uh, For me, it it allows me to be a bit of a chameleon, and the goal is to write a song that sounds like they wrote it by themselves, you know. So that album that you wrote, I think five songs with John Prine is really, really amazing. Yeah, I love that record. I'm really, God, I love all those songs, but Day Is Done is something I'm particularly proud of.
I've played that a couple of times, you know, live. And then I had a band called Fortunate Sons with like all these great players, and we would always play We Are the Lonely, and I would act as though I was reading the classified ads from the newspaper. I'd actually have the lyrics to our song inside the newspaper that I'm holding up. And occasionally John would come out to a, a Fortunate Sons gig and sit in with us and and sing the song with me. And I, I did a video recently of uh, We Are the Lonely. It's on YouTube. I think We Are the Lonely is my favorite of the songs on that album. Yeah, and, but, uh, you know, it's like goofy things like Big Fat Love and Quit Hollering at Me and Same Thing Happened to Me. Anyway, I, that was a real special time. John would come over. Howie Epstein from the Heartbreakers was producing his record. And um, the way that came about is my, my son was working at the movie theater, and he recognized John because I'd been listening to The Missing Years and taking my son to basketball practice. And it, that record of John was, was just in my CD player all the time. And so my son had been hearing a lot of John Prine. and. He recognized John at the movie theater and he handed him his popcorn and, and said, you're John Prine, aren't you? He said, yeah, my dad plays your record all the time in the car. And, and he told John my name and John, we barely knew each other, but um, we'd run into each other a few times, you know, and Nathan said, well, you should write songs with my dad. <laughs> John Prine. So uh, next day I get a call from John. He says, your son says we should be writing some songs together. And he was in the middle of making this record with, with Howie and he needed to be writing some songs anyway. And he came over and, and we wrote a song and, and I, I had a little drum machine and, you know, threw a couple of guitars and a bass down and John sang it. We sent it to Howie and, and he really liked it. And he said, do that again. And, John just kept on coming over, and we we wrote half of that record together. And then I got to go to Los Angeles and play on the record too. So it was it was really fun. So we lost John Prine this year to the COVID. Yeah, it was so unbelievably sad. I was writing a song that I eventually finished it, but when I heard how serious John's situation was. My friend Ray Kennedy's wife is really best friends with Fiona. Their families are real close. Their kids kind of grew up together and stuff and uh, told me how serious John was. And I started this song, and it was, it was like I can't get John Prine off my mind. And I had the song finished, and I, and I made a little recording of it, and then I went for a walk. And when I came back from my walk, Delbert had called to let me know that that John had passed while I was walking. And so all of a sudden my song that was talking about hoping John could get better and everything, it, it didn't make sense anymore. And, and I wound up changing it and, uh, and rewrote it. There's a, a little video that my son put together on YouTube, just called prime. And then you can check it out. It's going to look at that right after we're done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're lucky that you got to work with him and, and we have a body of work to listen to and refresh our memory. We lost him. We lost Charlie Pride, who recorded your Power of Love song as yeah, well. Yeah, that's, uh, I just had the strangest thing 
happened regarding the power of love. I met Clarence Thomas in this situation, and I didn't realize that I was talking to Clarence Thomas. And we were at this function, and he came to me and said, um, someone told me you're a country songwriter. So I'm a big country music fan. He said, you, you'd think the only country music I'd like would be Charlie Pride." He was just kind of laughing and stuff. And he said, but I, I like Jimmy Rogers and Kitty Wells and Hank Williams and Merle Haggard. And so we talked about country music for a while, and he came back to Charlie Pride. And I said, well, I did, I did write a song in the 80s that was a hit for Charlie Pride. It was titled one of his records and called The Power of Love. And, and he stopped and he said, wow, you wrote the, the Power of Love? He said, I've got that vinyl record at my house. I love it. And, you know, we kept talking for a while. And then he, out of nowhere, here comes Mike Bloomberg shows up and said, hey, we're supposed to be over here or whatever. And they disappeared. And, and my friend came to me and said, well, what were you talking to Clarence about all that time? And I said, Who, who's Clarence? And he said, the guy you were just talking to. I said, that's Clarence Thomas, you know, and I had no idea that who I was talking to the whole time. But he played for the Mets. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Is he on the Cowboys? <laughs> yeah, right. So you have had since the early seventies a very special working relationship with Delbert McClinton. It is impossible for me to pick my favorite. Delbert McClinton, Gary Nicholson song. Um, and so I, I, maybe I should ask you, do you have a favorite? Oh, I don't know. They're, they're all really special to me. I just, I love our entire bag of songs. It's, it's I guess it's 35 or 40 songs that he's recorded of ours. And I, I love them all for different reasons. Something always comes up about Rita's gone, you know, and, uh, I'm kind of crazy is, uh, you know, one that still lives because of a George Strait cut of that, you know. And um, But I don't know. You Were Never Mine is one of my favorites. That's a co-write with Delbert and I and, and Ben Montench. I really like that a lot. Let's talk about one of the songs that you wrote that was recorded by Leroy Parnell, you and Delbert wrote, called Squeeze Me In. But 
it really has kind of become one of the staples in Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood's performances. Yeah, I, I don't know if they still perform it. I mean, I went to a Garth show in, in Memphis. Trisha came out and they did some stuff together. And I kept thinking they were going to do the song, but they never did. But um, they got a lot of songs to choose from. Yeah, that was a, a fun thing because that's the only Garth Brooks cut I've ever had. I love the double entendre of the squeeze me into your schedule. and Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of fun writing that. Well, I think that's one of the things about Delbert McClinton is he has a great sense of humor. Absolutely. You know, you just know it from his records and his, you know, he's the hardest working man in show business. And, you know, he has a great time at his shows, but, you know, you're his friend. I imagine you guys must have yucked it up. We've had a wonderful life together. Really special. He's, he's a great friend and a great guy. And you never think about it because it's just part of life. But, you know, when I stop to consider things, I think I'm, probably more influenced by Delbert than anybody that, you know, I have a personal connection with. How has he influenced you? Well, it's just, you know, I, I just fell in love with the first Delbert and Glenn record when I, when I first came back from Hollywood to Texas. Uh, and we got married in 73. And first thing I heard was that Delbert and Glenn record. I think my friend Tommy Spurlock gave it to me. And uh, it's the perfect fusion of, of R&B and, and country music. It's where I, I live. It's the foundations of where it all started for me it was uh, pre-Beatle rock and roll, you know, and that's where Delbert comes from. You know, it's, it's uh, country music and blues stuck together in a way that's just uh, unique, unique to him. He's got it, you know. I mean, he, he exemplifies... You know, before they named it Americana, he was making that blended kind of music that's, uh, and it's a Texas thing too, you know, but yeah, he's just, he's just one of the best there ever was. Yeah, it really is a combination of flavors in his sound, you know. He is a complete, unique, natural guy that used all that stuff together without ever thinking about it at all. Complete unconscious occurrence of nature that somebody was asking me about Delbert one time and I said, well, secret to Delbert's success is he doesn't know how to spell compromise. If anyone had ever told him, hey, you should cut this song because it'll be a big hit. And, you know, he would just look at him like a hog looking at a wristwatch or something, you know, just he's always just followed his muse directly and done exactly what he intuitively knew was the right thing to do. It's just, it's all about choices, you know, and he's made some great ones. One of the great songs you wrote is When Rita Leaves. This is one of my favorites. Yeah, I love that song. Left a lipstick letter on the mirror Shattered on the bathroom floor All I could put back together Has never seen me no more 
took all her clothes but one red dress the one she knows I like the best all I could do was clean up the mess and wonder where she had gone I had a sky blue rag top Mustang 1964 she drove it off into the night till it just wouldn't go no more caught a ride on into town got some gas and laid the top down then she burned that pony to the ground on the desert in New Mexico When Rita Lee Rita's gone Tell me about the writing of this song. Oh man, it probably took us a while. We're trying to figure out what was actually going to happen. You know, we had the, the first verse a lipstick letter on the mirror that was smashed on the bathroom floor. Then we had all that and a picture of her leaving and everything, but we didn't really know. I think we went through a bunch of variations about what she was going to do for revenge and the whole thing about taking his ragtop out in the desert and, and getting some gas, and then she pours the gas all over the car and Sitting on fire. That line, I had a sky blue ragtop Mustang, a six, 1964. That car was designed by Lee Iacocca and was the very first Mustang and was both a hot seller when it came out, but is now like one of the cherished collectibles. So burning that pony down is really like a crime against nature. This like an, a really valued antique car. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that when you wrote the lyrics. No, we, we, we knew, you know, my sister's husband had a, a Mustang convertible like that. and I knew that car. It would be a tragedy to have that happen. Yeah, no, that would make a lot of guys cry. That's for sure. Yeah. When Rita leaves. Huh. Yeah, sure, that's... Uh, I love that song. It's uh, what do you love about the melody? Well, we you know we we just it's Rita, and we, so it's going to be a, a Spanish kind of a thing. You know, it just uh, it fell into that pocket, and we knew that it was going to have that flavor, and it it occurs pretty naturally once you commit to that. The flavor. So on the melody, when you find the melody, do you look for a flavor? Well, it, it, it it's, it's all coming from the words for me. It's like if the words dictate, you know, that, if the meaning leans towards that, then I'll go there because it seems natural, you know. But like a song like My Kind of Crazy, which is kind of a love song, what's the flavor that you're going with there? It's all dictated by the lyrics. I, I, I have this thing for me that's like... Uh, I look at song titles as seeds that that need to be sprouted. And, you know, it's like in that seed, if it's a title like If the House is Rockin', Don't Bother Knockin', 
you know you're not going to write it as a waltz, you know. The title of the song can tell everything. I mean, that there may be a rhythm in the actual title that sets you in that direction, or there might be uh, just the nature of the subject matter of the title would tell you um, what kind of music is going to go with it. If you use same kind of crazy as an example, it's like we wanted something rocking. It just sounds like it's going to be a rocker. been used in a bunch of movies, but probably the most famous, or perhaps most famous, besides the Urban Cowboy Jukebox argument, is uh, from Crazy Heart by Jeff Bridges, where he sings Fallen and Flying. Were you surprised that they picked that song? Well, the way that occurred is, um, it's a co-write with Stephen Bruton, and Stephen had been in a 12-step program for a long time. and So I was going, I was in Austin, and I was going over to visit Stephen to hang out and play guitars and and visit and possibly write a song. And so I kind of had the chorus going in my head, funny how Fallen feels like flying for a little while, because I thought it would be a song for Stephen to get into, you know, because of his his 12-step thing. He'd been sponsored for various people, and he was uh, just a, a treasure of a guy for, you know, helping guys get sober and stuff. and. That's what happened with that. But we wrote the song, and then I realized after we'd written the song that it was really about what Stephen was going through in his personal life at that point anyway. We got the song written. He called and said he was co-producing the Crazy Heart soundtrack with T-Bone. And uh, he said they were going to use our song. And at first it was like, well, okay, sure they are. But then, you know, he called again and said, well, they shot a scene today with with our song and so it's going to be in the movie for sure and then they wound up using the song twice in the movie in different scenes and um, and it was a thrill for me i met jeff bridges because my band that was playing around town when they made the starman movie he came in and, and heard our band and loved it and and invited us to be the band that played the scene in starman that was at the motel and stuff and I got to know Jeff a little bit during that time and kept in touch a little bit. But anyway, it was great. Uh, I got to go out to California and play the song with Jeff and T-Bone, some other great players at the Independent Spirit Awards. Jeff won the uh, Best Actor there. And then the next night won the Oscar for his performance. And we got to go to the Oscars with 
Jeff and his wife and T-Bone and his wife and Barbara and myself. And we stayed with the T-Bone for, for that week and hung out and had a big time. It was great. I think this is one of the greatest lines about substance abuse in all of music, the idea that funny how fallen feels like flying and then the pause for a little while. You know, in the beginning, it must be a lot of fun. <laughs> and that's what draws people into it. And then after a while, it's not fun anymore. Yeah, it's kind of the nature of drugs and alcohol. It's just, um, it's a tough thing, you know, because payback's tough sometimes. Stephen was such a great guy. I mean, great songwriter and uh, uh, one of my favorite people ever. It was always a, a little treasure for us to have had that song recorded, and it was a great thing. It was really tough to see him go too early. So you wrote a song called Skin Deep, which went to, I believe the album went to number one on the blues chart the year it was released. Yeah, that's uh, Tom Hambridge produces Buddy Guy's records. And uh, Buddy had said to Tom, how about a song about beauty of skin deep? And Tom mentioned to me that Buddy had said that. And I said, well, how about a song just called Skin Deep about about race, you know, and um, and so that's what we did. And but we 
we gave Buddy a writing credit because we probably wouldn't have written that title if he hadn't said something like that, you know. He he didn't really write it with us, you know, but his recording, it was the title of his record, and it was uh, kind of towards the beginning of Tom and I writing songs for Buddy. He's He's recorded, I don't know, maybe 20 of our songs. Every time I get an idea for a blues song, I'd take it to Tom because I knew that he would record it on Buddy if we had a song that fit. Tom's a great record producer, and he he knows exactly what Buddy will and won't say, and and we can adjust our ideas to fit the records he's making with Buddy. It's been really great collaboration. I love Tom. So underneath, we're all the same. You you know, you've been sort of progressively maybe writing some more socially conscious material, not just with Skin Deep, although, you know, I think, what are you trying to say here with Skin Deep? Well, it's it's obvious, you know, I mean, that's the whole purpose of the song is just the fact that skin color doesn't have anything to do with who we are, you know. I've gotten really socially conscious in my songwriting uh, lately with doing the Great Divide record last year. And uh, and then throughout this year, um, I keep writing these kind of songs that are um, more socially conscious. Just uh, living through the Trump era led me to a lot of these things. Uh, I'm still doing it. I just uh, had a video last week uh, of a new song of mine called Proud Boy that's on YouTube. You have to check that out too. But I've got a song called Hate is Too Heavy a Burden to Bear that was um, inspired by Martin Luther King quote and and a song that's a tribute to John Lewis called Make Good Trouble. You know, all the songs on Great Divide, God Help America and Immigrant Nation and We're One, Choose Love. It's been hard for me to write uh, just a regular kind of love song during this time. Interesting. Yeah, you feel motivated. I mean, well, we just, uh, you know, experienced the insurrection at the Capitol this month on January 6th. A lot of things led up to that, and certainly Proud Boys being part of that. So I guess that it, it really, when I listen to The Great Divide, it really feels to me like you're inspired by this voice of Woody Guthrie, you know, the early protest singers of Pete Seeger and early Dylan, first Dylan album, Bob Dylan, and, you know, even into the 60s protests against the Vietnam War with a song like 19 to a certain extent that you wrote. You have this body of protest work that's out there, like this voices coming out from inside you. Yeah, it's, uh, I can't help myself. It's just, uh, that's what comes up here lately. Um, that's just what's on my mind and on my heart. When I was making a Great Divide record, I was making a conscious effort to make it as nonpartisan as I could. I mean, someone could easily figure out where I'm coming from if it's a, a song like Immigrant Nation or God Help America or whatever. But but I didn't want it to ever be, you know, exclusive to clickbait to the left or whatever. You know, and I, I wanted, I mean, the ideal of having a record called The Great Divide would be to uh, try to heal you know, to try to shine a light on what's going on and, you know, bemoan our situation, but also bring attention to it and hopefully uh, inspire some some kind of unity or, or 
hope that someone might be able to point themselves that way. I don't, I don't know, man. I, mean, I don't think I'm any kind of a healer or anything, but I am inspired by the socially conscious stuff of Woody Guthrie and, of course, Bob Dylan and everything. I mean, Curtis Mayfield and, and Donny Hathaway and uh, Marvin Gaye. Yeah, Marvin Gaye and all of it. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting thing. It's like um, now that there's no money in, in making music anymore, it's, it's kind of like I'm just kind of doing it. This is what's on my mind and this is my expression artistically and hopefully it can provide some kind of healing hope for healing anyway well i think we all need that the hope for healing and i i completely get that the great divide really isn't clickbait for the left it really is i think you speaking for the voice of the middle which has been lost by this great divide in america you know the, the the middle voice of America, the normal voice, the, the non-extreme voice, you know? Yeah. The regular man and woman, no matter what race or creed or religion you are, that just normal voice has been lost by this great divide. Yeah, it's it's really tough. I mean, I've, I've tried to hang on to my friends that were on the other side, you know, that were Trumpsters, whatever, you know, it's like, hate to brand anybody, anything, and especially musicians, you know, because you make music together, then you never dream that maybe some of your musician pals are, are over there, you know, on the other side, and it's unbelievable. And then Facebook is, you know, when you first get a Facebook thing going, you say, Everybody come be my friend thinking they might come to your gig or something or, or buy your record or something. It's like a, I thought a good song would be Talking Facebook Blues about how you got 5,000 friends you've never met and all that kind of thing. I'd like to hear that one. <laughs> yeah, but but it's uh, it's tough when you see uh, some of the stuff that, uh, uh, for me, um, I've been writing a bunch of sh- stories connected to, it's, it's actually become a, a memoir that I'm trying to put together. and I. On the heels of the insurrection, I, I wrote the story about my dad taking me to Washington, D.C. when I was a 10-year-old kid and got to meet Sam Rayburn because my dad had done some campaigning in North Texas, and uh, and he had a, a bit of a personal relationship with Mr. Sam, and we got to go and meet him and have lunch, and he arranged a tour of the Capitol for us. And, and it was just so crazy to see all those weirdos marching through the Senate, you know, and guys with horns sitting where Speaker Rayburn would have been, you know. Anyway, it just, it was very upsetting for me. And uh, anyway, I wrote a little short story about that. Yeah, I got to say, I really enjoyed your short story about the sort of birth of Whitey Johnson. I realize you're not just a great songwriter, you're a great storyteller, and both in your music and in your creative nonfiction writing and you know Whitey Johnson tell us who Whitey Johnson is for our listeners the Whitey Johnson character is a composite I was asked to write a short story for a book called a guitar and a pen that was compiled by Robert Hicks who wrote uh, widow of the south and so a bunch of songwriters contributed to his book his songwriters writing 
um, short stories. And so the character of Wadi is like a guitar hero that's a composite kind of character for me growing up in Texas. Um, it's like this character was, he was black, but he was albino, so his family called him Whitey, and he was a, a guitar player that played with Little Richard and and did all this stuff. But anyway, Whitey winds up passing away in a, in a fire that started by the Klan to burn down the the church, where Whitey goes and, and plays a, a white falcon that the preacher owns there and he can't get out of the fire and he dies in the fire and and my my dad takes me to um the side of of the burned down church and i i got a a melted um tuning key off the the gretch white falcon and kept, kept it that's the story and it's become your alter ego in performance it colin linden is just an amazing country blues guitar player he internalized all the great Reverend Gary Davis, Blind Blake, Blind Lemon Johnson, Blind Lemon Jefferson, and and, uh, and Blind Willie Johnson. And he knows how to do country blues guitar playing better than anybody I've ever been around. And so we started, when we would play together, it was just a magical thing. We just read each other's minds. And so uh, the story goes that I was compelled to go to Sam's Menswear on Fifth Avenue where they had a white suit in the window and it was a two for one. I was able to buy a white suit for a hundred bucks and for fifteen more dollars I could get a purple suit for Colin and that's what started the performing of of Whitey Johnson. Colin helped me put the, the record together and the first gig was Colin had a gig at Edmonton Folk Festival in Canada and um and that was Whitey's debut performance. Keb Moe and Robert Cray were were on the bill as well. And first time I'd ever worn the suit as Whitey and performed. And they took a picture. They called the Oreo picture because those guys are on either side of the names. Well, I got to say, Gary, it's been really fun having you on the show. I really appreciate you sharing these backstories with us. Is there anything you want to promote or sell or thank? You know, um, I don't really know how to put a record out at this particular time. I'm trying to figure out how to how to do that. So um, maybe there'll be a way. I do have an accumulation of all these politically motivated songs that I'll send you um, the, these uh, YouTube links to to this stuff. And so uh, I would just encourage. Maybe we'll post that on the site. If there's one voice and one song that you've written that you could have any living voice record, what song and voice would you pick? Well, I think just because of what's going on right now, I've got a new song called Hate is Too Heavy a Burden to Bear. It's uh, based on a quote from Martin Luther King, and and I feel like a voice that could get that song to the public would be uh, John Legend, maybe. Uh, I can't wait for our... Twitter and Facebook and Instagram followers to get a hold of that. That is a great idea. Please, please, let's see if we can make that happen. Follow us on our social media. I want to thank you, Gary Nicholson. This has been amazing. Thank you for attending Backstory Song. Thank you, DJ Wyatt Schmidt, our recording engineer, and MC Owens. Uh, thank you, Alyssa Golding, for following and liking us on all of our episodes. We love our fans. And please share 
these episodes and share the playlist site. You will find the first Gary Nicholson songbook on our website to be shared so that people can listen to Gary's music almost the entire day because there's almost 500 songs out there for you to listen to. Thank you very much to our listeners and thank you, Gary. Thanks so much for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.